are listening to a recording of Los Altos Institute's course, Wokeness as Religion. My name is Stuart Parker, and I am the instructor. One of the problems that I found, one of the reasons I decided to start this course was that people would go, this is a cult. And my next thing, because I have a PhD in religious studies, would be, I know, so what kind of cult is it? I want details. There are lots of kinds of cults. Uh, some of them are more hostile to society than others. Some wreck their members' lives more than others. Some are weirder than others. The, what I found so frustrating when people like Chris Elston and others would say it's a cult, I would want that to be the start of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. And so I've decided that this is a good way to elaborate that. So um, anyway, as I was saying, I was uh, happily minding other people's business, uh, being an activist, uh, when um, I was faced with this escalating set of demands from the people I was organizing with that I espouse views that I did not believe to be true. And that those demands from 2015 to 2019 kept escalating. And in order to be allowed to work uh, on climate change or on uh, land reform or on um, uh, opposing investor rights and free trade deals, all that stuff, I felt like I was being driven into a hostage situation where, the, where a group of people had taken hostage all the things I cared about and were demanding that I say crazy things that they wanted me to say in order for me to be allowed to keep caring about those things. And so I actually lied more and more frequently about my political views from 2015 to 2019 until the demands became so intolerable that I had to say what I actually thought. And um, since then, I've been subject to one of the most aggressive campaigns of cancellation uh, we've seen in British Columbia. Uh, and uh, I remain, according to the BC government, a, uh, according to the Minister of Education, who issued a press release through the Premier's office, um, a dangerous, unprosecuted serial child rapist who constitutes a danger to every child uh, who lives in um, their city. Uh, so, I feel like things have got pretty fact-free. And the only way out of this corner is to punch my way out of the corner. Because as long as the wokes are controlling what is true and what is false, um, everything is held hostage. Everything that we care about is held hostage to the whims of this movement. Now, I want to say that Wokeness is itself now so large, so powerful, so global. I don't know whether you guys saw Glenn Greenwald yesterday talking about the Brazilian censorship law that uh, is going to, uh, which dwarfs Trudeau's proposed censor online censorship law by orders of magnitude. It will restore Brazil's pre-1984 military dictatorship press censorship system. And... This is supposedly a guy on my team uh, doing this. So we've gotten to a pretty ridiculous point. And so um, wokeness is huge. It's affecting billions of people. It's affecting trillions of dollars. And we have to recognize how big it is. So we're gonna be looking at one aspect of wokeness in this course. 
It's an underrepresented aspect. And that's why I think the work we're doing here is useful. So it's a massive global phenomenon affecting every aspect of people's daily lives. And it's also all of these other things. It's an interlinked set of social movements that both cooperate with each other and compete with each other in a synergistic way. And uh, these social movements are, the way they're whirling around each other is part of wokeness. Because wokeness, like any powerful phenomenon, is dynamic and capable of rapid adaptation. Um, it's a set of orthodoxies that, again, intersect in points, compete in points, and cooperate in other points. Uh, and by orthodoxy, I don't mean ideology. An ideology is a coherent set of beliefs that follow one upon another. They may be falsely premised. They may be badly reasoned. An orthodoxy is a set of rules about what you are, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, and what you have to say. Orthodoxies often appear to impersonate ideologies, but the philosopher Wittgenstein pointed out that you don't have to take people at their word. Just because they say what they've just said to you was an idea doesn't mean that the pile of words they just dumped on you is actually an idea. And uh, that's why I, I tend more towards the idea of orthodoxy. There's another way we could describe wokeness. It is the class consciousness of the managerial class, if you want to talk about it in Marxist terms. It's... Um, uh, it's, and it's a different class consciousness than the class consciousness of the owner class, which is what we've been dealing with before. Uh, the managerial class thinks differently because its relationship to us and to the physical world is different. There's another way in which I think Yuri Bezmenov was proven right. Part of this probably is a KGB psyop that was designed in the 70s and 80s and slowly detonated at liberal uh, arts colleges across the United States to seed a new kind of class consciousness. Because we have to remember that the USSR was run by the managerial class. So that whereas in the West during the 20th century, the managerial class were merely agents and lackeys of the owners, on the other side of the world, the agents and the lackeys of the owners rose up against the owners and impersonating the workers took over these societies and instituted policies similar to those we see here today. So some of this may simply have to do with the material nature of the managerial class. There's another way we can think about it in more capitalist economic terms. It is an alliance of three horizontally integrated industrial interests big tech, management consulting, and pharma. And there's a coincidence of interest and a coincidence of power that's causing them to cooperate in a particular way. Um, there's another way uh, about which I, I've written as, uh, is that it's a new form of etiquette and offense politics that you're looking at the Emily Post or Miss Manners of the 21st century. These are chat books on how to act around other people if you wish to impersonate the managerial class at parties. Uh, there's um, 
Uh, it's also a strategy for gaining buy-in to capitalist projects, um, investor rights, ownership concentration, free trade. All of these things have been wokeified. Um, I was part of the old left that had been trying, that had been in support of Brexit since 1992 when the Maastricht Treaty was proclaimed. I was completely baffled that we were all in favor of this treaty we'd been fighting for 20 years. Suddenly, it's like, oh, it would be, it would be racist to, to, uh, to support Brexit. It's like, but, but, but I, I, thought, I thought we didn't like all of these investor rights and all this free trade and all this labor mobility and person. Oh, be racist to even talk about that. So that's another element of this. It's about greasing the wheels for major capitalist projects and continuing to reorganize our society. So recognizing it's also all of those things, this course is about how it's a religion. So, or rather it's a response or set of responses to a fundamental religious question. Now, many people blame a, an intellectual movement that was a tad silly uh, for most of the bad things we associate with wokeness a movement called the post-structuralists or post-modernists, comprising scholars like Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, um, uh, Bruno Latour, and other cool sounding well-dressed men with French names, um, uh, the, uh, who write in the genre of continental philosophy. Now, I'm not saying that the post-structuralists are in no way implicated in the fix we've gotten ourselves into. But it's my view that they're overblamed. And whether I'm right or not about whether they're overblamed, I am gonna use tools that they built for us to analyze things like wokeness. Because whether Michel Foucault is responsible for wokeness, and I don't particularly believe he is, um, whether it's his fault or not, bears in no way on whether or not we should use the powerful analytical tools he created that are literally designed to analyze a problem like this. So there are two terms that the French postmodernists use that you will find me using in this course, discourse and episteme. So discourse refers to the whole discussion that's going on in a society within the parameters of the mainstream. For those of you, you, those of you who know the term Overton window, Overton window, that's a term for stretching the discourse, making the number of possible things you can say in a society get bigger or smaller. So a discourse is a conversation. It's not a single opinion. But the point is that the conversation is inevitably organized to favor and spotlight certain kinds of opinions and to suppress other kinds of opinions and to situate other kinds of opinions wholly outside of the discourse. So what, to use this, this French postmodernist term, the, woke, the reason we find the wokes frightening is that they appear to have nearly captured the discourse. They appear to have nearly achieved total control about the things that can be said. And once you control 
Once you can radically limit the things that can and cannot be said, it shortly follows that you radically limit the thoughts that can and cannot be thought. So discourse is important. Episteme, one of the most important contributions of Michel Foucault. I would argue that his theory of the episteme is actually an elaboration and I guess um, uh, it's a process whereby Foucault puts together two of Karl Marx's important ideas that Marx didn't put next to each other. Um, one of those ideas is that the way the labor system works shapes how the people working in it can think. And the other insight Karl Marx had is that, um, uh, uh, sorry, there's the, 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 the work you do shapes what you can think. And of course, his other insight is how work is organized determines who has power in a society. What Michel Foucault does is he puts those together and takes the next step and says, aha, so we can understand the ruling class of a society by looking at how the society thinks and that will name this, this thing that's a combination of who's in charge and what thoughts can be thought. We're gonna call that whole thing an episteme, a social order so that when we think about a social order, we go who works for who, how does energy move around, who has power over whom, and how do these people figure out what is and is not true? And the fact that who has power is inextricably linked to what is and isn't, what, uh, how you figure out whether, whether something is true, that's Michel Foucault's idea of the episteme. So because wokeness is such a powerful phenomenon and it's, um, uh, you know, it's so many things at once, there's a bunch of stuff that we won't be looking at very closely. We won't be looking at how it affects electoral politics. I've written a whole bunch on that. Um, we won't be looking at how it affects aesthetics. I think there's very interesting work to be done on that. And I've started doing that work with my uh, piece uh, for Feminist Current, March of the Grotesques. Um, and of course, it uh, really affects our labor systems. And I'm not alone in writing about that. Lots of people are writing about how, it's a, how wokeness affects work. So, um, that's uh, anyway, that's the situation. So now I'm going to get into the next part, but I want to ask you for questions first because I know I busted out a lot of concepts really fast. We're going to come back to all these concepts and elaborate them further when they're introduced again. But for the first round, questions, comments on where I've gone so far. Well, I will continue along. Okay, so. I'm going to be arguing, the structure of my argument is that we'll be studying wokeness as a response to a particular problem around which religious debate has been disproportionately organized in the West since what we call the axial period, since this period from 800 BC to 600 BC, 
where there were major political and intellectual realignments from Cornwall to Japan and the linking of all of these societies in that huge strip through trade. That's the axial period and a lot of our ways of thinking about the world come out of the world that happens after that giant uh, trade linking up process. Uh, so that uh, the West from that point forward, although the idea of Europe doesn't really become popular until um, the 1100s, um, we can start seeing a distinctive Western civilization or Western thought. Now we have to remember how do we know cultures are different from each other? Well, because they're encountering each other. At the east end of the Mediterranean for a long time, there's a big conversation because it's an intersection point among cultures. And contrary to what we often think that cultural encounters naturally produce assimilation, they're just as likely, indeed more likely, to produce intensifications of difference. Languages do not always vanish. Sometimes new languages come into being. Sometimes new ethnicities come into being out of these encounters that the world doesn't necessarily, that when people discover people who are different from them, Jonathan Z. Smith, the religion theorist, argues that the most offensive form of difference to a person is too much like me. The thing they really hate, the thing people are most likely hate about each other is they hate people for being too much like themselves. Uh, too much like us is a problem. And it's one of the reasons that often during cultural encounters, cultures become more entrenched in their differences that's an easier way to navigate the world. So we often think that cultural encounters produce assimilation, but more often than not, they do the exact opposite. Uh, that this has to be about something. Like this can't just be about the fact that I live over here. My difference has to have some significance. So I'm gonna find some small thing about myself and I'm gonna make it a big thing. So I think it's through this encounter that takes place in present that, that uh, sort of Eastern third of the Mediterranean from Asia Minor, from present day Turkey, uh, around to Egypt. Uh, all of these ideas and encounters come together. And it's from this encounter that we, uh, that we see the West making itself distinct by focusing on one particular religious or spiritual or scientific problem. The idea of the discrepancy between mind and body, between immaterial and material, between the natural and the supernatural. Now, while many cultures have this idea or an idea like it, it's distinctively Western cultures that have a kind of monomaniacal obsession with it. They were always asking questions about this. Uh, some cultures might have those concepts, but it's not going to occur to anybody to worry about that stuff on a daily basis. We live in cultures that have been engaged in 2,500 years of navel gazing and anxiety about those questions. And what, and you can actually trace the epistemes of Western civilization, which um, by how they come up with different answers to this mind-body question. 
uh, to this nature, supernature, ideal, real, those questions. We can trace distinct periods where everything shifts, and that is a key part of that shift. Now, some people think that these changing ideas cause people to change their material conditions and ways of working and ways of ruling their societies. Some people think that people's ways of working produce these new ideas. If they change, it produces these new ideas. Uh, we don't care. Uh, whether it's a cause or it's an effect is less important than observing these correlations and seeing what's happening. The idealists and realists can duke it out later as to whether the thoughts cause the actions or the actions cause the thoughts. It's a fun problem to obsess over, but like the mind-body problem is largely a useless obsession that takes time away from better pursuits in one's life. Now, of course, I'll point out that there are times when the West succeeds as the West precisely because of this, this strange set of thoughts. So here we go. Uh, and Foucault is himself agnostic on whether it's the material that causes the real, uh, the immaterial uh, in his theory of the episteme. Again, he's not as interested in causation as in correlation. So now I'm just gonna ask uh, if anybody has any questions or comments before I go to the third and last bit of today's talk. I have a question. Yes. When you're talking about uh, cultures uh, encountering each other, now I'm really confused about how multiculturalism works. And I know you said you were going to talk about politics, but all of a sudden, you know, I'm clearly a Canadian. Well, maybe it's not clear, but um, I'm surrounded. I grew up in, in that. And I just find that, uh, like, how do we navigate it? Well, I but think we that's it's one of the key sites of, I mean, the thing is that being cosmopolitan is not special. It's not something that we invented recently. When I talk about the axial period, that's when our cities became cosmopolitan because there's no point in actually having a city if it's not cosmopolitan, unless you know, you're know you a maniac like Gilgamesh running a water control despotism. But generally there's no point. There isn't a lot of economic incentive in the ancient world to have cities. They're largely used as a way of burning off excess population. You make them attractive enough that poor people move there and die of epidemic disease really fast. That's mostly what cities were for initially. And then um, we found that cosmopolitan cities so facilitated trade that they, they, cosmopolitanism developed a profound economic logic, right? If you're in, you know, uh, let's say on Cyprus in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, 600 BC, you've got Phoenicians, you've got Greeks, um, you've got Egyptians, um, you've got all these different groups of people. They're all maritime powers. Um, what makes Cy what makes a city in Cyprus prosperous is that the Greeks will come there to trade with the Phoenicians, that the Egyptians will come there to trade with the Greeks. So there's a myth of multiculturalism in Canada um, that multiculturalism is somehow an invention of the modern era. No, monoculturalism was an invention of the 19th century. 
during the 19th and 20th centuries, we destroyed the pre-existing multicultural fabric of our cities through a force we called nationalism. And nationalism then screwed all these things up. So then we had to recreate multiculturalism um, in a very coercive way. Uh, so multiculturalism today, I know, is, is thought of um, one of the great achievements of the Pearson-Trudeau um, refounding of the nation between 1964 and 82 um, was, was changing the valence of multiculturalism. Multiculturalism was something that the left used to despise because the first multiculturalists of the modern era, of the contemporary era, was the National Association of Manufacturers in the United States. Um, and they believed in something called multiculturalism because it reduced employee wages. That if you had a group of unilingual Swedes and a group of um, uh, formerly enslaved Blacks and a uh, group of uh, unilingual Italians, if you were a major manufacturer, you would fund second language programs for your workers. You would fund patriotic associations for your workers. And what the labor movement was doing, what people like Joe, Joe Hill was not named Joe Hill. Joe Hill, the famous labor leader, the, the iconic labor leader of the 1920s was named Joel Haglund. He was a Swede, but he and the international workers of the world believed because they saw the evidence that not all learning the same language was preventing the workers from working together. And that having different religions was preventing the workers from fighting together. And so people like Joe Hill took on English names. They took on the language and the nomenclature of their society. They took on a common religion so that they could build solidarity. And it used to be, so multiculturalism used to be thought of as an ideology of the right, of the corporate sector. And we, it was successfully rebranded as its opposite for both good and bad reasons in the 1960s. Um, but multiculturalism is one of these things that's taught to us as an, an unalloyed good in Canada that we cannot analyze. When in fact, contemporary multiculturalism has, I mean, one of the reasons that Maxime Bernier's party ran the largest proportion of non-white candidates of any party in the last election is because of how we structured multiculturalism. You see, there's, it used to be that we had a nationalism where everybody was invited to Canada Day and we waved the same flag, the maple leaf, and we told stupid Canadian stories that mostly weren't true. And I'm not saying like Canada Day was a big success as a festival. It was no 4th of July. This is always kind of being a bullshit country. But the point was everybody was invited to the Canada Day picnic. They were invited to the Canada Day parade, and it was expected that everyone would go. There was something wrong with you if you didn't go. Now, fast forward 50 years, to the old man's uh, son being in power, and we see the opposite theory. The elite in Canada, the managerial class, the good people, the woke people in Canada, what do they do on Canada Day? They cry. They stand in front of the camera and they cry. 
and they conscript various tokenized people as actors in this play they put on where they apologize again and again for things they don't even think are their fault. Um, and they blame their ancestors for, even though they're actually doing worse than their ancestors did uh, today, abducting more native kids, polluting more indigenous reserves water, right? That, that none of that has changed, but, but they cry. Um, but if you're not one of these very sensitive people, uh, if you, you have a job where you work with your hands or you wanna have a good time on Canada Day, you don't wanna cry, well, if you're white, you're not invited to Canada Day at all anymore because a bunch of white people show up on Canada Day and start getting drunk and flying flags and eating hot dogs. They're going to claim that there's another attempted military coup again, aren't they? That Canada's been invaded by dangerous hosers who are eating hot dogs and drinking and having too good a time. So in the new Canadian multiculturalism, the laptop class gets to come out on Canada Day and cry and show their sensitivity and sensibility. The white working class should hide at home uh, lest they be labeled a hate group. And the non-white people are told, well, uh, this day isn't really for you because you're not really Canadian. We would like you on a specific day we have selected from your calendar to put on some exotic brightly colored outfits and stage a celebration for us. Uh, to be exhibits in our museum. Um, and so one of the things about Maxime Bernier is that as much as, yeah, the guy is a, not a good guy, he's at least inviting everybody to Canada Day. And that one simple, this is for all of us, um, that single gesture of universalism is pretty much what saved him because all the racism he was banking on riding to the polls mostly never showed up. Um, and of course he can't convince anybody. He's like a new fang, you know, he's not like, and Bernier is not like a proper modern misogynist, like, you know, a Trump or uh Morgan Auger or someone like, uh, you know, Maxime Bernier is like an old style 20th century misogynistic guy. You know, you just just watch him at one of his own rallies when a woman is speaking at the microphone. Um, it's like, no, Bernier has he has too much of a sense of like joy, uh, whether that's like a really shitty joy that is problematic or whether it's joy we should admire. Um, of course, people who come out of other places and put everything on the line want to have a big party about their choice. They want to hear that the decision to become a Canadian was a good choice, that it wasn't stupid. But instead on Canada Day, we tell them, oh, it was really stupid of you to come here. This is a terrible racist country. You're such an idiot to bring your kids. So yeah, I think multiculturalism has gone from being problematic to, uh, I can't believe, like it's only taken me, what, four years to realize that the thing that I thought Bernier said that I found most offensive in 2019 is probably his single most useful intervention in his entire career. So anyway, that's my multiculturalism spiel. Anything else before we go on to the very short history of ideas? Okay, so um, let's, uh, let's get into it. So I've told this story many, many times. 
uh, because it's a story of the building of something that we call supernature or the immaterial or metaphysics. And so um, once upon a time in a city called Athens, uh, there was an autistic kid. Um, and uh, there was a local eccentric who um, was a very rude person who constantly tried to force people into arguments they didn't want to have, had no understanding of social boundaries. And um, eventually the autistic kid and the uh, local eccentric teamed up and um, we, we know them today as Plato and Socrates. Um, now, Socrates was exceptional as a teacher. On the one hand, he was, uh, well, I mean, in some ways he was a Maxime Bernier-like figure in that uh, he was constantly meeting with greasy people who might want to organize a military coup. Um, he uh, had lots of very controversial opinions that uh, um, made him, you know, sort of so annoying in the public square that people couldn't stop paying attention to him. Um, but he had one virtue that almost all people working in the field of higher education at the time lacked, which was a complete disinterest in raping his students. Um, the reality was that uh, tuition fees for most of our history, and you can see this functioning still in Britain right up to the present day, that um, elite education is usually paid for concurrently in two ways. Um, uh, and actually this is true more of education for boys than it is of education for girls. Elite education for boys is, is almost always paid for both in money and non-consensual sex. Uh, and certainly we can say a lot of nice things about the Athenians. Their child safeguarding practices leave a lot to be desired. The only reason ancient Athens looked good was it was being compared to the Phoenician civilization where people kept sacrificing their babies to the fire god Baal. Like that's what you needed in order to make child safeguarding in Athens look responsible and appropriate. Now, like many people with autism, um, uh, uh, it's evident that Plato had high levels of tactile defensiveness and would have been ruined had he not lucked into getting a tutor like Socrates. And this partnership is really important because I want to argue that when Plato introduces us to this mind-body separation, when Plato's philosophy arises, many people go, well, what an interesting philosophy to have built. And my argument is that Plato didn't build a philosophy. He described his actual lived experience and uh, I have a number of friends who are, um, who are a lot further along the autism spectrum than many people's autistic friends are, uh, who really struggle, really, really struggle. Um, and they all relate to that, 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 you know, if they're, you know, uh, smart autistic people, they really relate to that, that if you have a high level of intelligence, one of the way you're going to, you're going to cope with your disability is ideas will actually feel more real to you than reality. And your experience of being physically embodied will always feel like it's a mistake. You're trying to escape from it back into your head where it doesn't hurt. Um, and so Plato crafted a theory of the universe that I think largely describes um, 
the experience of a, of a highly intelligent young autistic man in classical Athens. And his insane loyalty to Socrates as a biographer of this sort of public nuisance had to come from somewhere. And it's in Plato's speech of Aristophanes, um, an often misunderstood, very important speech in the Timaeus, where it's the most sophisticated, um, or is it, uh, never, it doesn't matter. Um, speech of Aristophanes looked at, can be looked up all by itself. Um, he's putting words, he's explaining what Athenian education is like. Plato's basically figured out that it's really wrong to have sex with kids and you shouldn't do it even if they say they might want to. Um, and it's in the works of Plato that we see that idea first being propounded as a necessary and positive idea. And when Plato created an institution called the Academy, one of the things that made the Academy different than the school of the Epicureans or the school of the Aristotelians um, or the school of the Pythagoreans was this prohibition on sexually interfering with students which honestly probably lasted about 20 years after Plato's death. Uh, but, you know, there was a moment in the sun. So Plato um, writes in, um, in uh, the Republic about this, thing, uh, about this thing called the world of forms. And he has this metaphor of the cave, right? That the physical world is like the shadows on the walls of a cave. But if you step out into the light, you enter the actual world and you see how distorted and one-dimensional the shadows were. And he argued that this is in fact how the universe works, that his ideas about how things should be in his head, his idealized forms were what was real. And that this world was a mistake created by an inferior God called the Demiurge. And that the Demiurge was this amoral divinity that created the material world so that it could have a domain that it hollowed out from gods. Um, so, and all of the, one of the commonalities among the great classical philosophies is they were all monotheistic. They all argued that the, the Greek gods everybody was worshiping in the street weren't real gods. And that, you know, if you were smart and you went to private school, you would know that. Uh, so, um, it's from this then that I want to say, we don't come up with the idea, uh, that there's a physical and a non-physical. If you ask Plato, um, which world is more physical, of course he would say the world of forms. Um, and we have to now go into what the word physical, words physical and natural mean. Physics. Phusis in ancient in classical Greece simply means everything that is and how it works. There, the translation of that word into Latin was nature, natura, which simply meant everything that is and how it works. The Romans had an additional word for that, which was universitate rerum, meaning the list of all things that are. So Plato wouldn't have argued that there was a physical and a non-physical or uh, a metaphysical or any of that. He would simply have said, no, the thing you think is real is less real than this thing I've found, less physical. 
because the laws of cause and effect are more easily documented in the world of forms. The world of forms is more important, blah, blah, blah. Now, nevertheless, Plato had started people down that road and his former protege, later dissident Aristotle went off and formed his own school and went, I think this idea that this stuff in my mentor's head is more real than the world I can touch is kind of bullshit. I'm not saying ideas aren't important, but let's roll up our sleeves and get down to brass tacks. And Aristotle in his life proceeded to write the definitive work on economics that remained the industry standard until 1776, the definitive work on astronomy, which remained the industry standard until 1500, um, and the definitive work on the practice of rhetoric, which remains the industry standard and is taught uh, in universities today as the gold standard of rhetoric. Aristotle is an extraordinary genius. And, but one of his books um, is a lot of speculation, sort of cosmological speculation about how the universe might've been created, sort of big bang style speculation. Um, the kind of stuff that, you know, theoretical physicists might write where they get sort of romantic and religious sounding. Uh, Aristotle did write a book like that and we lost the cover. And this turns out to have actually really screwed us up um, because there was a book that Aristotle wrote called The Physics, which was the rules of cause and effect and how things worked in the world, which was the industry standard until the mid 1500s. And then he wrote a sequel with all these cosmological speculations and we lost the front cover. And in fact, in the West, we lost the whole book. It wasn't until the Crusades that we rediscovered this incredibly like wild and imaginative sequel to this book that we'd been reading in our universities and monasteries called The Physics. And we named it Metaphysics the physics above the physics. And there's a reason we had to do that. And it had to do with a problem of how to run a university system. In um, the 1300s, um, the cathedral schools had become orthodox in the way that universities have today. Um, the great cathedral schools of London and Paris and Glasgow were so orthodox that like universities today, they were firing all their best and most controversial instructors. Um, these instructors went out into the streets of Paris and you can see that there's a lot of our, my institute, our institute's strategies here are not original in any way. They just look weird because they're a level of historically based plagiarism that isn't often encountered. So what do these people who've been fired from their university teaching jobs do? Well, they created what we call the universities now, which were they went into the streets and they created small student run co-ops and small instructor run co-ops where people would pool their money so that a group of students could listen to an instructor in a setting like this. Uh, in the 12th and 13th centuries, universities weren't quite able to give credentials yet. That's going to hit in the 14th centuries, century after the cathedral schools collapse. So it's in this late medieval period um, that there's a big departmental conflict in all of these major universities between two departments, 
the physical astronomy department and the mathematical astronomy department. And the mathematical astronomy department is the astronomy department that is in charge of actually predicting things, tracking what's going on in the sky, making sure we can insert intercalary days or months if we're, if we're getting off the 365 and a quarter yearly cycle, fixing the calendar, predicting eclipses so people can show off by predicting all that sort of stuff. Mathematical astronomy department has built this incredibly complex mathematical model of the solar system, which we often think of, you know, we, we belittle it because it put uh, the earth in the center instead of the sun. But again, back to uh, Wittgenstein, someone once made the observation to him, uh, isn't it ridiculous that, one, that not that long ago, our ancestors thought um, that the sun revolved around the earth instead of the earth revolving around the sun? He goes, that, that is ridiculous. I mean, imagine what that would have looked like. So uh, the... The uh, uh, So there's this department that is good at making predictions. It's using a shitty model, but it's built the model well enough that it still guesses stuff well. And up against it is the physical astronomy department, which is not the department you think. It is a department populated by theologians who make declarations about the universe to serve the Roman Catholic Church. For instance, the declaration that every planet is enclosed in a uh, in a crystalline sphere made of the quintessence, something directly contradicted by the other astronomy department that knows that if that were true, the planets would be crashing through each other's spheres all the time. But the thing is, you couldn't say that because if you said that, you'd lose your job. So instead, they just created these two departments that didn't talk to each other kind of like analytical and continental philosophy departments today. Technically, they're the same subject and they hate each other and have nothing to say to each other. Uh, so these two departments, the problem is that the mathematical astronomy field doesn't advance very fast because it's built on this shitty Ptolemaic model of astronomy. However, in 1454, Constantinople is taken by the Turks and refugees flood into Italy with a whole other set of library books that people in Western Europe had lost. Worse than Aristotle, when Arist they, the West had 80% of Aristotle, but there was some really weird shit in the Byzantine library from a movement called um, the Neoplatonists, uh, which who were people who had largely developed this theory of the natural and supernatural and uh, this mind body and whatever. And then the government had forced them to convert to Christianity in, uh, you know, sort of incrementally. They closed the academies. People had to look for work somewhere. There were these new Christian schools they taught there. But before the Neoplatonists got Christianized, they were up to some really nutty stuff possibly based on some texts from China they might have encountered, they came to believe in a figure called Hermes Trismegistus, thrice great Hermes, the inventor of alchemy, the Roman god Hermes, the planet Mercury, the Egyptian god Thoth, and the monkey king from Taoist mythology. 
all of those things at once. Oh, and Moses, most importantly. Um, and then some people wrote uh, what used to be a perfectly respectable cult of literature, kind of literature called pseudepigraphic literature, meaning I'm going to write what I think this great person in the past must have said. And they wrote, so in the fourth century AD, Neoplatonists in the Middle East wrote some texts called the Hermetic texts, supposedly authored by this Chinese, Egyptian, Roman, Greek god who was also Moses. And um, these texts had a real literary flair to them. They were a great read. And um, they had all this imagination. They were wild. They took ideas that had lain dormant in Western civilization for a thousand years. And people could feel traces of these ideas in their minds because the Christianized Platonists had passed on little traces of these ideas. But this was this, was this incredibly decadent, uh, wild read. And the Hermetic texts were the first texts that argued that the earth revolved around the sun because the sun was at the center of the cosmos because the sun was itself God. This was obviously heretical, but inspired many local intellectuals in Italy and further north uh, in the Holy Roman Empire. And one of those guys was Copernicus. And not based on empirical evidence or observation, but based on this very, very trendy piece of literature, Copernicus created his heliocentric model of the solar system. And it took, um, initially it was less predictive than the Ptolemaic model, the old geocentric system, but within just a few years working with Copernicus's model, it was like a motor had been strapped onto the back of these mathematical astronomy departments and they started figuring things out really fast. And the sense and the physical astronomers are getting a little concerned, but they're not that concerned because their version of the cosmos is the one the church is teaching. It's the one they know is real and it's not changing. The trial of Galileo is often misunderstood. It's an important trial to understand today because we, we have our Galileos today. We have such trials today. Galileo's position was not, or Galileo, the church had no argument with Galileo's position that the planets moved in elliptical orbits and that there were no spheres. The church's objection was to that thing being taught as physical astronomy. And their demand was that as long as Galileo made no claims about how the universe was, but merely about the model that predicted things, if he merely said this is predictive, but not true, he wouldn't have been under house arrest. He would have been able to take that academic job at Harvard. Was the, the yeah, Harvard search committee did invite him uh, near the end of his life, uh, but uh, house arrest had taken a lot out of him. So um, now what the church had been building and what it would inevitably use was it was right to be frightened of Galileo. And so it went back. So when the university system was first being built, Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica put forward a theory of physics that, was, uh, that could be used to contain these problems. 
Initially, there was no need to contain the problem. It was just a weird department that made predictions. But suddenly, Thomas Aquinas's great theological synthesis turned out to be a bunch of help because he had argued in the 13th century that there were two. There wasn't, physics wasn't one set of rules covering everything in the universe. It was, it was the set of rules for one set of things that God didn't think was very important. And then there was a whole other set of rules for another set of things, things like angels and the human soul that God thought was very important. And those things were ruled by metaphysics, a totally different set of rules that was mysteriously incompatible with the rule of rules of physics. Well, this was used to contain people like Galileo and Galileo himself speaks in favor of this concession. The church, right, it loses the battle, but it wins the war. Uh, the, rather, it, uh, it uh, wins the battle, but loses the war against Galileo. Ultimately, the church accedes to Galileo's formulation, which is this. It is not for the church to decide. No, it is for the church to decide who goes to heaven. But it is not for the church to decide how heavens go. And... That is your nature-supernature split. Things the church really cares about can be walled off from scientific investigation, and things the church is willing to let go are not walled off. And it is this compromise that allows the scientific revolution and the enlightenment to happen. The church receding from its demands and going, okay, there's a thing called science, and as long as you don't tell us how human beings came into existence, what happens after you die, whether there are angels, whether Christ really did die on the cross, whether the host really does become the blood and body of Christ, as long as you stay out of this area, which is ruled by metaphysics and supernature, you have everything else. And this permitted rapid scientific advancement. This is how we could go from Copernicus to Newton in a little over 200 years. Uh, indescribably rapid ability to do this once a whole area of, of, of intellectual inquiry is walled off from religious interest. But the problem is that makes us sad because we know it's a hack. We want, the human soul wants to live in a unified universe in which all things are part of one category that's ruled by one set of cause and effect. And so that's why the moment Isaac Newton creates his, his theories of motion and cosmology, he repents of them and spends the rest of his career trying to undo his work, trying to figure that he'd locked God outside of the world. And now they were stuck in a world that they locked God outside of. And so Although locking God outside of the world permitted the enlightenment, what it has meant is that almost every significant religious movement since the start of the enlightenment has been trying to figure out how to unlock the door and put God back in and put the angels and the spirits and all the things we want to be true back in. And my argument is that wokeness has, is a unique solution to this problem. 
that what wokeness proposes to do is put all of the supernatural back in and eliminate God. And that's why you'll see that one of the most important aspects of the woke movement is the restoration of the doctrine of the immaterial soul. The idea, now, in the late 18th century, people got really concerned about this, and lots of social movements came along that tried to scientize God and his angels, one of the first of which is Mormonism. Uh, one of the most important revelations Joseph Smith receives from God in upstate New York in the 1830s is that spirit is, in fact, detectable. It's a form of matter, and God informs him that we simply lack sufficiently sophisticated instrumentation to detect spirits. Well, this coincides with the electrification of the world, and people discover that not only are there like gravity, which is a set of invisible forces we only just learned to detect, there's been this other invisible force called electricity. And like gravity, it has fields and attraction. And so in the 19th century, movements like the spiritualist movement, the mesmerist movement, the Mormons, they're all going, we just need to get proper spirit detectors built. And this whole problem is gonna be fixed. And they all fail, right? We enter the 20th century deeply disillusioned. By the 1920s, we've lost the confidence the Victorians had that we would ever be able to find an angel using a mechanical device. Uh, that, that confidence is shattered and it's replaced with nothing. That's one of the reasons the oil men found it fruitful to create the fundamentalist movement in the 1920s, because when that disillusionment hits, some people go, so the problem is science then. If we can't pull the supernatural into science, we need to smash science itself. And so this big oil industry investment in creating young earth creationism in the 20s coincides with this new response. And I've of course largely been animated by opposing that response of opposing the agenda of the oil industry and the Christian fundamentalists and the Muslim fundamentalists and their oil industry and the incredible alliance they built uh, between the Bush family and the Saud family, right? In the, in the 70s and 80s, that's been my focus. And so I was not looking at how the people around me were dealing with this problem. People who were not like me were having this problem and they were the problem. And so most of us on the progressive side of the political spectrum were completely asleep at the switch. We didn't realize that this crisis of the material was an axiomatic property of Western civilization. And that when these crises occurred, they would be society-wide events. And so um, I think that there was, a, there was a spirit of, it can't happen here on the global left that was smug and incurious and has served the world very badly. Uh, because when wokeness came along, we weren't ready. We hadn't seen any of the warning signs and there had been plenty and we'd wave them all off.
And so what I want to end with is, if there is a single doctrine that wokeness is fighting the hardest for, that it is going the craziest for, it is going the extra mile for, I'm not saying the most dangerous thing it's doing or the most serious thing it's doing, but if there's one, if you want to pick the thing that woke, the wokes are fighting hardest for is the belief that babies from the moment they're born have indetectable immaterial souls that you cannot find using any instrument and that these souls are pre-existing souls that are inextricable from the baby's nature and that holy people in our society can, using their oracular powers, detect these immaterial souls and pronounce on their nature. Now, this is actually very similar to the Mormon doctrine of the patriarchal blessing. Um, it's uh, when, when we get there, you'll see that um, a lot of this is um, Mormons really punch above their weight intellectually in America. The Mormons have such a system for working out really bizarre ideas that essentially like a lot of bizarre ideas in American society are Mormon lab leaks, essentially. They're, um, uh, they're, they're incubated in Utah and when they get powerful enough, they escape. The first one of those, by the way, is the urban legend, the thing that made us create the category urban legend of the vanishing hitchhiker. It was a piece of Mormon mythology that existed from 1855 to 1941. And then during the, first, the Second World War, it escaped from Utah and spread all over Anglo-America. And people were seeing vanishing hitchhikers everywhere. Um, so this, uh, this idea that, and this is crucial in Mormonism, the one attribute, the single most important attribute of these pre-existent immortal souls, and there's actually a place called the pre-existence in Mormonism, the single most important attribute they have is gender. That everyone has a pre-existent gender and that this is in fact baked into the physical structure of the cosmos because only male gendered souls can become the God of their own planet. And Mormonism is a cosmic pyramid scheme where you are making gods of gods of gods of, of planets all the way back to the original god from the planet Kolob. And as the universe expands, new worlds come into being and exalted beings um, uh, that are male um, have thousands of wives that create these new planets and then populate them with pre-existent souls who are then later born into something called existence, the world we share. So the pre-existent gendered soul is actually very much like original Mormonism because Joseph Smith during his last two years of life when he came up with this theory argued that God wasn't really God. God was in fact the first guy like him who figured out the rules of the universe so that he could become the God of his own planet. Uh, and so wokeness really, in many ways, it's core cosmological tenet. Um, and I'm not saying it's a direct line of inheritance, but it's core cosmological tenet is the version of Mormonism that was preached in the city of Nauvoo, Illinois, between 1841 and 1844, when 
the originator of the theory was assassinated. So, um, so as you can see, there are lots of that when these epistemes change, society changes, right? That when we locked up the Platonists and put them in the church, we created the early middle ages. When we shut down the cathedral system and replaced it with universities and we bifurcated the astronomy departments, we created the high middle ages. When we, when we had our scientific revolution and we made the new dividing line between the, the supernatural and the natural, again, society changed. And these things shook down economically, material and in all these other ways. So what the Wokes are doing here is the fundamentalists have been trying to lead us out of the enlightenment for a hundred years and they failed. The Wokes, they've got a shot. They have actually got a shot and the fundamentalists are so scared they're starting to team up with us. So, because uh, the directions out of the enlightenment, there are a lot of different directions we could go. And I just wanna say, I think this is, the, we are in the midst of as big and consequential a shift as the Enlightenment or the scientific revolution or um, the Donatist controversy that produced the modern Christian church. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to over the course of this class, not just finding ways to talk about wokeness, but also hopefully in sending you guys out there with a different narrative of the religious history of the West since um, six to 800 BC. All right, so that's spiel number one. Um, questions and comments? I've got yeah, one. It, oh, so go cool. ahead. Go ahead, Christine. I was just gonna say as a Latter-day Saint, I, I, there's some things I'd push back on. Okay. Uh, and asking totally respectively, respectfully, mm -hmm. have, you, have you attended church very often with Latter-day um, Saints? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, my friend Ross uh, is uh, very active in the church. Uh, he's the main donor to this institute. And um, he, um, no, and I mean, one of the things you'll notice is, don't worry, I'm equally disrespectful of everyone in terms of that. So correcting the doctrine is important. But as you can see from the tone, I'm not respectful of Plato or Socrates either. Oh, and I'm, I'm totally fine. Yeah. I've sat through lots of things. I'm totally, totally fine. Okay, good. Because as we were talking about ideas and reality, um, I, can't, I can't tell you after my 53 years of living how little I hear about Kolob at church and things like that. And it's not out of ignorance. I'm a real studier. And so that's why I was wondering is okay. just between learning, doing, living, studying a religion versus studying it more as ideas and theory. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And so one of the things I want to say is uh, since my cancellation, three groups of my friends have shown up big time and they have been the Mormons, the Sikhs, and the Jews. The people, it turns out that when you're actually in a fix, people who are part of a chosen people reach out in different ways than people who are from a more, a more universalist religion. So I've materially benefited hugely from my circle of friends in uh, Latter-day Saint movement, both in uh, LDS and COC. Um, and that's why I qualified right at the end that I was describing 
Nauvoo 1841 to 44. Because I totally agree with you. Kolob is done. Um, a lot of like the, the, there's a lot of stuff that is important in Smith's last three years that's hugely de-emphasized in the LDS today that is not really part of the story. But during those last years of Nauvoo, the version of Mormonism that I'm describing was the Orthodox version, but it didn't last long. It didn't really, Kolob receded gradually, but so did the Mesoamerican archeology span stuff, which my dissertation was largely about. Um, so for instance, uh, how the church deals with genetics um, has changed dramatically in my 20, uh, 20 years of studying the LDS. That, um, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons it's a successful movement is that it is adaptive and it thinks about what parts of its doctrine are relevant in the moment. Well, and it's, it's belief in, in direct revelation, so. Yeah. Um, no, I'm totally fine. I mean, I, like I say, I'm working on my master's religious studies at UFC. It's, it's, it's not like I sit back and, and my <laughs> are accepted. So I'm totally, totally good. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I do think we, sorry, go on. Believer. At the same time, I am a believer. So I will jump in sometimes. Well, I think that's a good thing to do because the other thing is I no longer, I no longer have a job where I get to fly to Utah every two years. Um, so, you know, usually now I'm like, you know, I'm meeting my friends further outside of the core territory. I'm not doing research anymore. And so, you know, I've gone from being a person who is sort of, you know, tracking things with precision uh, to a person who's largely resting on a body of knowledge I stopped accumulating about eight years ago. So any revisions or corrections you have, they're going to help me because they're going to help me stay up to date with a thing I used to be totally on top of. Right. Cheryl Ann. Yeah. Um, the point that you were making about the soul um, and woke, um, with the, the issue of, of gender, you, you get like what I've read is that people will say that they were born into the wrong body and that they're saying like little babies would know. Um, I, I'm rather suspicious of that. And the other thing is that the majority of transitions have been female to male. And um, it's almost like they're squeezing women right out of the picture. Like we were being put out of the public space, the public square. And um, I find it very difficult to accept. And I can't believe that a man is a woman or a woman can be a man. So I, I'm, I guess I'm kind of in the, the Fred uh, Flintstone category here, but uh, I don't, I don't think know. people get into this course without believing that. I, I, people who don't people who don't share your belief are just not here, right? Because I'm a legendary hate monger. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> literally, every sentence I speak, a trans person is committing suicide somewhere in the world, according to the wokes. Every time I say a sentence, so of course they couldn't even show up for the course to find out what I'm saying because they'd be aiding and abetting murder, stochastic terrorism, I believe it's called. 
So I think that this is a pretty solid presumption you can rely on here. It used to be that our institute tried to play both sides and we didn't want to be like the wokes and hound people out over these small differences. But we reached the point where um, it was impossible to have members of the organization who held these views about the gender orthodoxy because as we'll see in subsequent episodes, packaged with them is a set of social behaviors for enforcing them that are antithetical to reasoned debate. So ultimately we had to protect our members' ability to have reasoned debate. So it's weird that we have to settle on a couple of things in order to be able to debate the others. But I think unfortunately that's where we've been pushed to. Yeah, I guess I'll just, I don't know if I have so much of a question, but it, <clears throat> interesting things sort of pop into my head when you were, uh, interesting to me maybe, to others maybe not so much, but um, when you were talking about the interaction between um, the physical and the metaphysical and that and that sort of border where that there's some intention of measuring from the from the physical astronomers and the creation of like e-meters or um, those kind of things that there's this uh, desire to sort of cross pollinate slightly, but with an instrument of some kind. I mean, I, I, it also brings to mind in a cultural way, I guess, uh, the machine from, from, from Blade Runner, the void conf machine where the police officer is, is observing this Android for signs of humanity. Um, And that, that sort of, uh, sort of popped into my head a little bit there, but it's an it's an interesting interface. Um, I I always sort of wonder how how the the religious world, and it's certainly not a world that I'm a part of um, as an atheist. Um, but I, I'm always it's interesting to to see how the the interpretation of uh, of data happens from from the religious world. Um, and, and so I, I'm definitely interested in hearing, hearing sort of more about that. So no specific question, but interesting well, you, stuff. You've raised a, a quite an important issue, and I'm glad because we're not going to do, we're not going to spend a heap of time on Victorian instrumentation of spirit detection. We'll, you know, mention the Ouija board and then off we'll go. Mm-hmm. So it's useful that we went a little, we go a little further into tech and the void comp machine from Blade Runner. Um, and I will... Um, And this is an example of how you can see how the natural supernatural boundary has has, has been a bigger part of Western civilization than of other great civilizations. And it's the parable of the x-ray machine purchase. So um, when I lived in Toronto, a friend of mine um, asked me to look in on a friend of his who had recently immigrated from China. And um, we thought, uh, you know, needed some help settling in. And this is one of, this is sort of, um, I guess, um, this is, uh, I think, right at, during the rise of Xi Jinping and the, the fall of Hu Jintao. Um, and so there's this new imperial confidence Chinese people are experiencing. And this totally comes off, this woman who's come over, she had worked in the hospital system in China um, doing uh, acupuncture and other traditional forms of forms of traditional Chinese medicine. And so she decided to set up a practice. So 
right away she picked an English name and I went, you've, you've spelt Francis Rat wrong. That's the male spelling. And she would not believe me. She would not believe me that there are two spellings of Francis and they're pronounced identically and they're conditioned by gender. And that sort of confidence, which I admired, it's like, it's great to see confident immigrants. Uh, like, that's so cool that your society's on an upswing and you're showing up like white immigrants would show up somewhere else. Like, it's really cool that you're like telling me how my language works after five minutes. But her next decision was a disaster. She looked through the, uh, through the directory and found that while Toronto was full of acupuncturists, and full of people who did cupping and coining and moxibustion and all these other TCM things, none of them had x-ray machines. And she could not believe it. You know, she's like, but our department at the hospital has four times as many MRI and x-ray machines as the Western medicine department does. All we do is nerve conductivity. That's, uh, that's the whole basis of acupuncture. That's why it works. It's scientifically based. We use these instruments. I'm gonna make a killing with this x-ray machine. Well, of course, she borrowed this money for this fucking x-ray machine. And nobody who wants to go to a traditional Chinese medicine doctor in Toronto wants to go to one with an x-ray machine. No, they want to have an old man in a brightly colored robe who feels their pulse and then closes his eyes and looks all Zen and pensive and then diagnoses their illness as it seems almost by magic and then gives them a list of strange herbs to buy. And they can come away having this very sort of mystical oriental non-Western experience. They don't want some incredibly business-like woman with an x-ray machine yelling at them about nerve conductivity and things they can do to help it. That's, that's not what they're paying for. But to her, there's a... Um, um, there's a, a problem with, um, uh, with this. It's like, why would you have this boundary? And I try to explain, it's like, because TCM is metaphysical to us and the hospital is physical. And so they're supposed to work by different rules. They can't use the same equipment. You, uh, if you wanna work in a metaphysical field, you have to be transacting invisible forces, not detectable particles. Um, and you just gotta pick a lane is my business here spiritual or is it material? And people in other countries and subcultures in our own place uh, don't do this. So my friend Ross, our, our, our largest patron, um, his dad uh, and a couple of friends were out um, snowmobiling uh, near Park City and they found a car that had driven into the ditch. And um, they, um, person flagged them down. They'd been praying, they noticed, next to the car. And then they saw the snowmobiles coming, flagged them down. They lifted the car out of a ditch and then they sped off on their snowmobiles. And Ross's father came home and said, you know, I think I know how these three Nephite stories get started. And sure enough, a book of faithful LDS folklore of sightings of the three Nephites, these three ancient apostles who are like the wandering Jew, but in the Western hemisphere, the basis of the vanishing hitchhiker legend and something that's largely vanished. There's not been a single three Nephite sighting since 1992. Before that, it was 88. It, um, they, again, like the planet Kolob has been seriously de-emphasized in the tradition. But the point is when you tell this story, 
from the point of view of this very faithful person by their car, they tell this story of these 2000 year old men cresting over a hill on snowmobiles. And that one of the things, if you're not totally captive to the old thinking of the West that was laid down in the fights between Plato and Aristotle, you're like, why do you think the snowmobiles are incongruous? Why wouldn't God's messengers have snowmobiles? Like, why can they only use pre-industrial tech? That seems arbitrary. Um, and the same thing when I was in Ethiopia. The Ethiopian Christian church has this very interesting tradition of folk iconography. It really shows you how wrong Maslow's hierarchy of needs is because when you go to Ethiopia, you see that the more people are starving and the crappier their lives are, the more hours a day they spend on community art projects. And so in Ethiopia, the, these churches are round, they're in concentric circles, and people are always adding to these huge murals that take hundreds of years to complete. And I encountered a church where they were adding a mural to reflect uh, the part of the mural that reflected the Ethiopian civil war uh, against the Derg uh, in 1991. And there was Jesus with his iron crown flanked by um, eight guys with AK-47s. Because why shouldn't God's messengers have tech? The joke's on us, people. The belief that God is somehow affected by literary genre and that, oh, whatever tech he uses that's before 1770 seems reasonable, but if it was created after 1770, obviously that's a silly superstitious idea. We're the fools for thinking that, like, Either there isn't a God or God isn't going to be limited by tech and literary genre. The people who see snowmobiles and guns and whatever in God's world, people who are blessing soccer balls, they're right. They're pushing against this enlightenment separation in a different way. And I think uh, at the end of the day, I think it's the healthiest way of pushing against it that modern Mormon and Roman Catholic responses to this are among the healthiest and that um, things like the new atheism might be a brilliant idea on paper, but really doesn't seem to work out on the ground sociologically in solving these problems. And when we build something like the new atheism, somehow the immortal soul slips in anyway. And here we are. Any last thoughts, Sandra? Um, this says a lot to take in, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, I'm a rare bird in that uh, I uh, don't believe in a god or uh, gods. Um, and I'm also a spiritual person. So my spirituality is much more aligned with, say, indigenous spirituality. Um, I was uh, indoctrinated in Roman Catholicism and uh, I uh, see religion as in, in my case anyway, a, uh, a detriment to spirituality, an, imp an impediment to spirituality. So um, I, I'm, that's who I am listening to what you're saying, right? <laughs> So. Well, and then we're actually going to get into the discourse of spirituality and what that sets up, because this op this post 1960s opposition between the religious and the spiritual 
is uh, I think part of the seedbed we're working with here. I actually just entirely out of perversity joined a Facebook group called I'm religious, but not spiritual. Uh, just because nobody says that. Like yeah. when I describe myself as fiscally progressive, but socially conservative, nobody says that. But I think most people are that. Yeah, right. the, the other thought that came to mind while you're talking about this is that I've always I've often likened the British public school system where the elites meet to eat and rule the world um, as a residential school, because the um, uh, I, I have personal experience in that my partner's grandfather uh, was a an extremely highly intelligent guy who graduated from one of the um, elite. I don't know if it was uh, one of the elite schools universities in uh, in the UK, uh, and was also a British public school uh, graduate. And uh, we have some of his writings. And uh, he's, uh, I think he was a remittance man because he was shipped off to Canada to be a tutor. Uh, and he's a, he uh, um, is, was a pedophile, which I think he learned in the British public school system. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm thinking about the implications of the elite uh, being child sexual abuse survivors and what that implies and how that shapes the kinds of, of um, governing of the elites. It's the central paradox of class privilege, I would argue, that the more elite, the higher your class, the less likely the state is to protect you from sexual violence. Uh, that part of class yes. privilege is the ability to enact sexual violence on one's family uh, with impunity. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, further to that, I, I always, people thought, well, Jeremy Corbyn's a big ideological challenge. You know, he's gonna really shake things up in Britain and he did in many ways. But I think the ruling class's fear of Jeremy Corbyn had nothing to do with his ideas. It was clear he was kind of an intellectual dim bulb and a bit of a pushover. Uh, Yanis Varoufakis took care of all of uh, Corbyn's uh, radical ideas in about five minutes. No, I think the reason they were afraid of him was because there was a particular theory of social control that operates in England where the gentry run the country for the aristocracy and the aristocracy makes sure that the gentry are controllable by making sure that every prime minister has been raped in high school. Um, and that Jeremy Corbyn coming up through this totally non-Oxbridge adjacent system would probably have been the first British prime minister who was not sexually assaulted in high school. Uh, and who knows what range of possibilities he might consider on that basis. And it's really useful to remember that this, this system of having a secondary elite, a client elite that's running things for you, the managerial class, that enacting systemic sexual violence on them as part of qualifying them as members of that class is important, right? Prince Charles, or King Charles now, first English king who went to private school. Look at what a weak king he is compared to uh, the sense of entitlement all of his predecessors had. Um, Liz Truss could just tell him to stay home from that climate conference, even though he'd been to every single one up till then, and he just stayed home. 
Um, so there's a weird thing where, yes, you are trying to create a submissive client elite. And that's why, of course, the commissar class is dangerous when it gets loose. Um, we've had these systems to manage our managers for a long time. And now our managers uh, appear to have been so twisted up by them that they're breaking free and enacting the logic of those systems on society as a whole. So I think you're, you're, you're on point, Sandra. And I think the last thing to link it to the residential schools, it reminds us of how much the physiological experience of trauma is actually linked to the ability of the brain to generate expectations. That um, we enacted the same, pretty much the same level of violence on Scottish settlers in Canada in our regular schools as we did on indigenous people in residential schools. But indigenous people were shocked because the Scottish were really weird in their obsession with hitting their own children. Um, and the way that they became habituated to the way you make children learn things is to hit them a lot. Um, the level of violence in that particular school system was unprecedented globally. And so as soon as people who didn't have generations of epigenetic adaptation of that were subjected to that level of institutional violence out of nowhere after coming out of cultures that raised their children primarily through benign neglect, the confrontation of expectations would be so massive as to, as to shatter people as it did. So, uh, okay, let's, uh, let's move. Uh, I'm gonna let you guys go. I'm gonna uh, set up a recording. We're gonna convene on Monday. Um, anything you guys want queued up for uh, Monday? Okay. Well, thank you all very much. I have a really good feeling about this group. It's great to have the, so many new people in this. So thank you all for, uh, for signing up. Thanks everybody. All right. Thank you. Yes. Thanks, Dirt. Thank you.